Instead of names and dates, let's focus on the narrative. I'm Adam Blesky. Each month I sit down with a friend to have a real conversation about a part of history that's new to them. The goal is to make connections, to foster curiosity, and to appreciate how incredible the story of humanity truly is. I'm not an expert. This isn't a lecture. This is HI 101. Last time on HI101, we talked about criminology, which perhaps didn't sound much like history at the time. What made it relevant to this show, though, was that it taught us about the social landscape of the eras in which the different schools of thought were produced, providing a picture of how we as a society decided to treat the worst of us. This time, we'll be looking at our ability to figure out exactly who those worst elements are as we discuss the advent of forensic science. Let's begin. All right, I'm here on HI101 with Dan McGinnis. Hello. And last time we talked about sort of um, the development of the way people think about crime on sort of a a macro level. And it got pretty sad and like kind of racist a bunch of times. Not that we were racist, but the ideas we were talking about. Oh, yeah. Kind of uncomfortable. So we're going to try and do better this time. Come on, history. You can do it. (laughs) I wouldn't trust history too much to not be racist. Uh, sorry man i got real bad news for you we'll start off we'll start off with a french police officer named uh alphonse bertillon who was actually mentioned in sherlock holmes holmes was an admirer oh cameo yeah well i mean he wasn't in the, the story but holmes was mentioned as very much respecting his work he was a french police officer as i mentioned Lived 1853 to 1914. And I mean, most of the stuff we're going to talk about here was like 1870s, 1880s kind of thing. He didn't have a super great start in life. Like he he like failed out of like a lot of stuff. And his father was fairly well off, but like basically just barely managed to get him a job as a clerk at a police office as like last ditch fallback when he... Just real didn't do a very good job. Okay, interesting start. His biggest quality, his most important quality, was that he was notoriously particular. He kept a neat desk, he kept neat records, he wrote neatly, and he could not stand the disorder that reigned around him in the Paris police office. So he decided to do something about it. Killing spree? I... (laughs) No, no, no. He decided that one of the biggest problems, because there was there was an extremely high rate of recidivism in uh, Paris in the 1870s, and he figured there had to be something that they could do about it, especially in terms of keeping track of criminals. Because when you have such a high rate of recidivism, which is just people who have committed crimes before committing crimes again, one of the best things that you can do is keep track of these people and try and figure out what's going on, because... 
generally sentencing works out to be different when someone is a repeat offender. But it's the 1870s and it's France and they're not doing a good job of keeping track of these people because really it's not that hard to do things to change your description. You know, just growing out your hair, changing facial hair, wearing disguises in general. Different hat. <laughs> yeah, essentially. He wanted to figure out a way to keep track of criminals in a way that their record could follow them reliably. So he began developing something he called anthropometrics, which just means the measurement of human beings. And he actually had to do this on his off time because all of his superiors are like, Alphonse, just like, get over it, man. Like, police work is the way it is. And so he just, I guess he went rogue. He didn't have to turn in his gun to badge or anything like that, but like, you got the good start to a pretty sweet procedural. Go, <laughs> Anyways. Going rogue with anthropometrics. The one thing they managed to give him was access to the La Santé prison in Paris, but told him that he had to go there in his off time. <laughs> so he used his own time to go there. Fighting the system? Fighting the system by measuring criminals. <laughs> There's some sort of dame involved. I doubt it. Like, I mean, it doesn't sound like a very fun guy. This is not. This is not a sexy discipline. It doesn't. It yeah. He he sounds like a bit of a wet blanket. So, anyways, he goes to the he goes to the prisons and he starts measuring people. And this is going to sound a lot like a lot of the stuff that we talked about with, you know, phrenology and and all of that fun stuff. But the big difference, once again, is that. He's not looking to prove anything by any of this stuff. All he's looking to do is find a simple way to catalog uh, the people that are booked. So he does some work, he does some math, he does some real life experiments, and he decides that there are about nine measurements that if you take those nine measurements from a person, you will have enough information if not necessarily to identify them positively, then to at least narrow the pool of suspects to a workable amount, right? Because what you're dealing with there is just big data. You have all of these booking records of people, but you have no way of matching them to other booking records, right? So how do you catalog them in a meaningful way? Especially with if, if somebody's lying to you about, say, their name, which is pretty easy to do in 1870s Paris. So is this for the situation where someone has been arrested and you're trying to determine whether they have previously been arrested? Correct. Okay. Yep. These nine measurements are, yeah, they're, they're pretty predictable stuff. Things like their, their height, the length of their step or their, their foot, sorry, not the length of their step, not their gait. That would be a terrible thing to measure. I was going to say that's very difficult to change that. The, uh, they measure, how how tall one of their ears is they measure the skull at the longest point and at the widest point so you get two measurements off of the skull a, a few other things in there it's not super important but anyways he again he's he's looking basically to narrow the pool as much as possible it, it was a it was basically an exercise in making the statistics work for you mm. i mean to round up all of the previously booked people that are you know five foot eight that's a lot of people, but to measure uh, to find all the ones who are five foot eight, but also have, you know, uh, you know, eleven inch foot, but also have, uh, you know, a head that is so many inches long and so many inches wide, it starts narrowing the parameters down to a workable amount. 
uh, I, I these records would have been incredibly cumbersome to look through but painful to think about now well you would start with as far as i understand it you would start with the height and you would go from there i mean once you get down to the height that's it's a pretty big narrower and then uh, you keep going it sounds like a pretty good idea the biggest problem with anthropometrics was that as a person ages some of these are going to change the other large problem with it is the accuracy with which the booking officers measure these things because some of them are pretty immutable something like the width of your skull as long as the as long as the measurement is in any way done properly you can't really do a whole lot to change that but your height i mean if you kind of hunch a little bit you can make yourself seem shorter than you actually are one of them was your arm span i mean Stretching hard is, is going to change that by just enough to make it difficult to use. Yeah. Uh, there, there are some problems there. And, and fuzzy matching is a lot harder when it's written down on paper. Right. But, I mean, the key to anthropometrics was trying to figure out a way to accurately track individuals who had, re- who had committed crimes before, which people weren't really all that good at before this. I mean, it's kind of weird to think about how recently it would have been relatively easy to just kind of disappear after committing a crime not that easy but like doable for the average person in certain ways as long as you move far enough away from the jurisdiction and as long as you had plausible documentation which again is all handwritten it's it's doable it's really doable that's not the only thing that Bertillon came up with, though. He also came up with the standardized mugshot. Photography had been in use since the 1840s, and they were photo- uh, they're photographing criminals. <laughs> they were photographing criminals almost from the beginning, but it was a pretty ad hoc kind of thing. And all Bertillon really did to, to standardize it was basically say, okay, I want you to, number one, remove any hats or glasses which was a thing that they didn't always remember to do. Uh, number two, make sure that they have a neutral expression on their face. It, something like smiling or or grimacing can really change the features of the face enough to, to actually have an impact on recognizability. Number three, have a neutral background behind the person just to keep from distracting it. Number four, have two standardized shots, one full face, one profile. Have their jaws at uh, a certain angle so don't let them tuck their chin in or jut their chin out to again slightly change the features of the face and that isn't particularly revolutionary except that the standardization does matter it's all little things that not everyone would think of immediately but yeah completely change whether or not it's useful information it's an it's it's a matter of being able to compare one mugshot to another is really what it is. And without that standardization, they become practically useless. The mugshot was quickly adopted by police departments all over the world. Uh, The FBI jumped on it. I mean, mean, the FBI isn't coming for a little while after what we're talking about here, but the FBI jumped on it big time for uh, wanted posters. And there's actually been a little bit of criticism about mugshots, at least publicly available mugshots, in that they've become so associated with criminals that 
if you show a juror a mugshot of a person, they're actually far more likely to assume that they're guilty because they've had a mugshot taken of them. It's really just something that happens if you're ever detained and booked by a police department, which is not the same thing as being charged with a crime. And not that police departments always want you to know that. <laughs> yeah, they always do a super good job of communicating all of those rights to you, especially in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. Great at it. Um, actually, I wonder when the Miranda rights came into effect. I don't remember Miranda. Which is U.S. specific anyways. Yeah, but it's a Supreme Court case. The uh, requirement of police officer to inform you of your rights. I think uh, it was early 20th century. I think you're right. 30s. I, I, was, I was thinking 20s, but again, 20s I'll, I'll look it up. and Because we'll... before that, there was some pretty bad stuff with U.S. police departments. Yeah, they... they... They're allowed to suggest that you don't have certain rights that you do or, you know, forget that. But like the the Miranda case was about definitively telling every single person detained or arrested by a police officer what their rights are, which is a super important thing to know if you're ever arrested. But anyway, we're, we're off topic a little bit. What matters is that the process of being booked is something that anyone who is of interest in an investigation will likely go through the fact that a police department will take a mugshot and, you know, more recently take your fingerprints, take, uh, in, in some cases, ask for a DNA sample. Those don't mean that you've committed a crime. In a lot of cases, they're used to simply exclude you from, uh, any suspicion, but Again, the, the mugshot has become so synonymous with the commission of a crime that just seeing a mugshot kind of makes people assume that someone is a criminal. But ironically, evoking the previous work of the Italian with the oh, criminaloid. Yeah. It's not necessarily their appearance, but they're in the right position. Lombroso, yeah. And I mean it, it is it is kind of interesting how seeing people in a certain in a certain manner makes us assume that their behavior is um, of a certain quality but anyways the, the mugshot helps again standardize and and really what you're looking at is, is police departments trying to build a database of people who have committed crimes which does a number of things number one it starts giving us actual like real data about the people that are committing crimes on a macro scale because that's not really something we had before we would have snapshots of who happened to be in a in a prison at a certain time but other than that not really you didn't have anything comprehensive and the second is to watch for recidivism rates which is really important in in tracking crime and uh has been shown it's been shown that if someone commits a crime you know more than once the likelihood of them to continue committing crimes is fairly high so someone who is already a repeat offender is usually considered a, a suspect in a new case fairly early on before we managed to narrow down through other clues uh, who it might have been. So it does give us tools for the investigation of current crimes as well as a picture into sort of criminology as a greater discipline. He did not stop with that. This guy has been called the father of modern forensics and with good reason. He also set up a standard for photographing crime scenes. Really? Yeah. He created a standard manual for the steps to go through to properly photograph a crime scene and any evidence found within the crime scene. Big deal. And again, it's it's standardization, things like the, well, I mean, 
it wasn't in the 1880s, but it would eventually uh, be standardized to the point of, you know, distance from the subject, uh, the lighting conditions, the lenses used, things like that. Bertillon did things more like, how far are you away from the thing? And have you included something to give us an idea of scale? Again, sounds like really basic stuff, but we're kind of inundated these days with ideas about how a crime scene is processed thanks to television. I mean, a lot of those are not that accurate, but a lot of the basic tenets of it... It involves a wisecracking detective at least half the time, right? I would say more than half the time. I think wisecracking is on the detective evaluation examination. Yeah. If they weren't, what would be the point? (laughs) Um, Yeah, but I I mean, things like preserving the crime scene and taking pictures in a certain manner, those are real things that you have to do to process a crime scene properly. And a lot of these procedures were created by Bertillon. What else did he come up with? Um, Something called galvanoplasty to create uh, molds of footprints, of ballistic strikes, things Mm -hmm. like that. So galvanoplasty is a... We won't get into the whole thing, but the problem with taking a mold with plaster of Paris is the plaster of Paris is really fragile. Um, so you can take the mold fairly easily, but then the mold itself is is a little bit brittle and is subject to kind of degradation relatively quickly. So he was using this technique that had been invented relatively recently that's actually fairly common in statues where you make a mold and then you use a, a chemical and electrical process to basically bronze the thing, like the, the process of bronzing. Oh. He would bronze all the uh, all the molds to make them... Uh, more durable and more permanent so that you can actually work with them. So you can't really take plaster of Paris and shove it in mud to make a, a footprint, but you can do that with, uh, well, it, it's brass actually, but a, a metal mold taken from the crime scene. You can also also use the reverse of the mold taken from like a bullet hole to at least roughly judge things like diameter of the bullet, Yeah, which is kind of interesting. You don't, use the molds in the same manner anymore but the idea of taking molds from the crime scene and trying to measure yeah physical attributes of what happened well even even looking at things like the the tread on the the shoe would eventually be far more important i mean you know shoes would be far much more custom in the 1870s 1880s but things like the pattern of the the nails in the heel would actually be quite conclusive if you look at them properly he also attempted to develop a scientific and comprehensive system for what they call question documents or question document examination today this is a this is a tough science this is a real bad science because basically it's things along the lines of looking at handwriting and deciding who oh. who did it oh that the the conclusive things yeah so i mean handwriting analysis is still a thing it's done in much more controlled manners now and is used much less conclusively now. It's generally done in conjunction with things like analysis of whether or not the document has been forged at all. Or like, I, I mean, you're not going to take a note and say this person did it because this is, it's that person's handwriting. Because like the that, L's are loopy. <laughs> you, see, you, you see, you see when they write a freehand, 
the lines tend upwards, which points to a positive person. That's the other dark side of, of question documents examination is the whole like personality aspect of, of anal- uh, analyzing handwriting. It's Back just the BuzzFeed quizzes. Oh, yeah. It's the, it's the what kind BuzzFeed. of criminal are you? <laughs> Pretty much. It's, it's such garbage. But like in terms of in terms of getting a proper handwriting sample from a subject and analyzing whether or not there is a chance that that person was the person who wrote a document, that's a thing that we do in much more controlled circumstances now. And it's a lot less full of garbage. It's still not a very good science, but we'll talk about some forensic stuff later that a lot of forensic stuff isn't that great of science. Anyways, Bertillon was especially bad at it, though. Have you ever heard of something called the Dreyfus Affair? That sounds familiar. What is it? We won't get into the whole thing. It's a thing that comes up sometimes in certain other history topics where it's kind of germane, but it's very rarely studied on its own. Basically, there was a French army officer who was accused of leaking documents to the Germans. He was from Alsace province, which has gone back and forth between Germany and France a number of times. So he was ethnically German. He was also Jewish, but he was a French military officer and he was accused of leaking documents to the Germans. There was a lot of controversy over this case. It went on for a very long time. It was studied very carefully by a number of experts from a number of fields, but the whole thing was tainted by anti-Semitism and this weird turn-of-the-century nationalism that was going on, as well as just Alfred Dreyfus himself was, like, the worst person to be accused of this, just in terms of, like, his own trustworthiness in French society at that point in time. So he ended up going to prison uh, in a place called Devil Island for about 10 years before he was exonerated. He did not leak documents. Devil Island sounds bad. Yep. So (laughs) I don't know a whole lot about it other than the fact that it's called Devil Island, and that pretty much speaks for itself. Uh, Also, he was falsely imprisoned for 10 years. At the trial, um, Bertillon actually testified that it looked like the handwriting was that of a man who was trying to make it look like someone was forging his own writing. So he believed that Dreyfus knew that someone would look at the look and compare at the handwriting and tried to disguise his own handwriting as someone else trying to replicate his handwriting. It's brilliant. <laughs> it's the perfect it's the perfect crime. Ingenious. We'd never suspect him then. <laughs> As a, as a figure in forensic science and in criminology, Bertillon is an interesting one in that he did a lot of really good stuff. He whiffed it a bunch of times, like a bunch of times. But I think what was really more important about him is his commitment to standardization and creating procedures for a lot of these things around just day-to-day law enforcement that had not been standardized in any way. I mean, the more I think about Bertillon, the more I wonder, like, what were police up to, like, before this dude came along? Taking taking bribes. Like, yeah, pretty much. They sat around taking bribes all day. Be- because, I mean, in a lot of ways, the modern detective didn't really exist before the 19th century, and, and police were there as much for, like, active crowd control as anything else. 
they were, you know, kind of glorified guards, like town guards in a way. And and to represent the idea of law, order, and justice. Pretty much. More I mean, than necessarily implementing that in the best way. Yeah, and I mean, the, the, the investigation of crimes was pretty non-existent before a lot of this stuff. I mean... Did anyone see who did it? No. Who do you think did it? I... Oh, that's pretty much bulletproof. Oh, 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 your neighbor who you've had a grudge with for 20 years. Yep, I'll believe you. Because, I mean, I don't see a lot of evidence of, like, real good police work around crimes, like, at all. At all. They tried. They did. And to, to, to their credit, they did. But the like the the application of science to police work really doesn't happen before the victorian era they just didn't have standards well it, it never had before so no this was introducing new tools yeah it's it's revolutionary and, and they're simple tools and you look at them and they seem like common sense but that's only because we've grown up in a world where these tools have existed for over 100 years and are considered the not even the standard but like the basics of law enforcement I found cases before Bertillon where they were calling them examples of forensic science, but mostly they just seemed like criminals who had had like really bad luck in terms of covering their tracks. So I found this one case of a murder with a pistol where they found... So before before the invention of the, the modern cartridge, you would do the whole like pour in the gunpowder and then put in a wad and then pack down the the bullet like that whole like like kind of like a musket the wadding was usually like linen or, or cloth or something like that but mm. you could use paper in in pistols mm. so this man had been shot in the head with a pistol and the wadding was still in his head and they pulled it out and it was a piece of newspaper and they found a man who was carrying a newspaper with that piece of it torn out <laughs> and they they matched it up like a puzzle piece. And they said, well, you did it. And he went, wow. yeah, you got me. <laughs> wow. But like, that's not, that's not really police work. No. That's an incredible set of, of circumstances that. Pulled a newspaper out of his head. Uh, well, I mean, wow. he was right there, I think. Like, that's just uh, plausible entirely, but disgusting. Well, yeah, it, it's, it's absolutely disgusting. Was the, was the person murdered? yeah this, okay oh yeah no he was super dead okay well is it sometimes well that's the thing if that's that's the thing that if you if you okay if someone breaks into your house and steals some of your stuff but you manage to get a look at them you could probably get that crime solved right maybe a lot of asterisks but yeah it's straightforward you, you have you have it wouldn't be unreasonable to expect some chance of resolution at that crime if someone's killed and no one saw it happen, I especially when forensics doesn't exist. Yeah, when well, especially when things like any sort of examination of the crime scene beyond like looking at it and being like, "Well, sure was hot a shot in the head." Like nothing beyond that really existed. So like if no one saw it happen and no one was caught literally red-handed. I mean the phrase caught red-handed has a very practical origin macbeth yes <laughs> if that didn't happen that that murder is not getting solved like i'm sorry it's just not 
are 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 your is is your house feuding with another house? Maybe we'll start that there. could maybe that could turn into something, but you know that's there's there's no way to really solve that until they start actually analyzing these things scientifically and actually learning how to look for these clues on a level more than well did anyone see it happen it kind of blows my mind how easy murder would have been i know <laughs> like that's really terrifying even to some extent uh you mentioned disappearing like over the course of our lifetimes the past 30 years that's gotten a lot more difficult relative to what it used to be yeah and it's it's never it's never been easy for anyone alive during our lifetime but yeah harder and harder and harder all the time i mean take the hit 2006 movie catch me if you can starring leonardo dicaprio and tom hanks Uh that man was able to pretend to be a variety of people and disappear around the world in a fairly plausible way it's a i mean it's based on a true story that actually happened it is a piece of fiction but uh, in the same way looking at doing that now it's there's no way no 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 there's there's no way and i mean even the even the movie trope of like having a bunch of passports stashed away false passports who who's got those who's got those that work now they're super hard now like you would have to they're cryptographically secure they've got like holograms and nonsense in there like holograms is this Star How do you Trek? That? We're, we're, we are trending towards Star Trek. Always, every single day. Um, but but like yeah, I, I the the most the most recent James Bond movie. There was a scene where he like opens up that room and there were a bunch of passports in there. And I I, I don't. I mean, it's James Bond. I don't believe any of the stuff that happens in there is realistic in any no. way. But even that stood out for me as being like a like really people like still do the false passport thing. Like it doesn't seem like a. a a thing that you could pull off. Of course, we aren't criminaloids, so. Well, that's true. We don't we don't have enlarged coccyxes, so probably wouldn't come up with anything quite that devious. Uh, <laughs> it's amazing how many police departments took on the science of anthropometrics to book their criminals, and it was really just starting to get rolling. It was really. He had it up and going. There were seminars on anthropometrics for police officers on how to properly take the measurements, on how to properly file the the, the dossiers on these criminals sorted by these characteristics. There was a coding system put in place. Big infographics say, like demonstrating don't walk on the murder victim <laughs> until you've measured things. Um, you know, that one, that one took a little while to get off the... <laughs> off the ground i won't be i won't fool you on that that's that's that took that took a lot of work to get into people's heads just sell them on the idea but yeah it it seemed like it was going to be the next big thing it seemed like it was going to be important in some way where's it going and then it just died off completely what because of some man named sir william herschel who was posted in india and he was sick of the locals stiffing him for various death benefits and things like that of course this involves the raj and so he started forcing them to roll printer's ink on their thumbs and leave a thumbprint on any uh, on any official documents and he began comparing them 
just this little backwater in India. It was in Calcutta, actually. Huh. Yeah. And uh, that's going to trigger a whole revolution in forensic science. But I think we'll take a quick break before we get into fingerprints, because that's probably going to take us a little bit. Okay. So we'll be right back. All right. Hey, everybody. Just a quick reminder that I do have an audience survey posted at the moment at uh, bit.ly slash hi101survey. That's bit.ly slash hi101survey. Uh, and if you could go there and fill out a couple of quick questions for me, it'll give me a little bit better idea of who it is exactly that's listening to the show these days, because uh, I know there's plenty of you out there. I just don't know a whole lot about you. So it would be a huge help to me if uh, you could let me know a little bit more about yourself. So that's uh, bit.ly slash hi101survey. All right, we're back on HI101 here with Dan McGinnis. Hello. And you expressed some concern during the break that this whole fingerprints thing might go a real bad way. The, uh, a law enforcement mechanism that's being started in India during the Raj? Nothing bad. Seems like it could happen at all. You know, I... I'm sure something horrible did come of it, but that's not uh, something that I found while I was reading up on fingerprints. Really, what was notable about it was that he was actually examining the fingerprints themselves and making sure that the patterns on the fingerprint matched, which is what fingerprinting is all about. Was it known before this point that fingerprints are, are generally unique? Well, no. It, it, well, it was suspected. Um, fingerprints had been used as kind of a seal for millennia i mean there were there were sumerian tablets that had been uh, you know signed with somebody pressing their fingerprint into clay but i think that was more of a show of giving your word more than it was you know they, they didn't know that they were different yeah it's it was... a mark of human connection exactly so but yeah there was there was a heavy uh suspicion that they were unique and people had begun studying them but nobody was using them as an actual practical identifier i mean biologists they get interested in stuff like that what's up with fingerprints why those why do and they'd been checking them out and they'd noticed that yeah no no one fingerprint seems to be the same but i mean they've also said that about snowflakes and we saw how that went what do you mean <laughs> well sometimes snowflakes are all, the same all snowflakes are unique sorry dan sometimes On they're the, pluto sometimes they're not even six the points. ninth planet sometimes they're not even point uh six points yeah that's a thing that can happen i'm just gonna rain all over your parade today Next, you're going to bring up feathers. You're never going to come back to the show. <laughs> um, no, I mean, I mean, they they had a they had a, a major suspicion that it was it was con like entirely unique to the individual that no two were the same. They knew that there was enough variation that it should probably do just fine as, as in terms of a an identifying mark, and so he started using it that way, and he had no problems with it. It was made uh, mandatory by 1877 in Calcutta, at least for any official documents to mark it with your thumbprint. So it was working pretty well for him in terms of making sure that nobody was uh, forging any identities. It's still mainly an administrative thing as opposed to a policing thing. Yeah, it was very much an administrative thing. There was a, uh, there was a British doctor, Henry Folds, um, who was stationed actually in Tokyo at the time, who published a paper on fingerprints in 1880 in, uh, in Nature, actually, which is a very boring name for a very prestigious journal. Fine with journals, the, the more on the nose they are, the, the more important they tend to be. But he, he published a paper on the uniqueness of fingerprints. 
he did a full, fairly large sample size study on fingerprints and found that, yeah, they are very much unique. Proposed it to the Metropolitan Police in London in 1886 saying, you know, maybe we should be using this instead of that whole anthropometrics thing because there's too many problems with that. Like, I did the study already. I got it published in a major journal. I, I did the legwork for you. I'm just saying maybe you guys should be using these things as an identifier rather than, you know, nine different metrics. This is one thing, one thing, and it doesn't change. Invariant, easy to, easy to record. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing about fingerprints is that, you know, your height changes as you age. Your, you know, there's, there's a number of things like your, the length of your ear was one of the things that they mentioned. Your ears kind of like droop as you age. They don't stay the same length. Well, the, uh, um, the cartilaginous tissue in your nose and your ears continues to grow throughout your entire life, mm-hmm. which is why old people have generally have bigger, droopier, sillier looking noses and ears. Yeah. And I mean, it, it slows down massively. That's not the only reason for the larger yeah. ears and noses. Um, it's also because they tend to lose a lot of weight compared to when they were younger. But yeah, exactly. In, in comparison to the rest of your features, they, they do tend to grow slightly throughout your entire life which is interesting but really inconvenient when you're trying to book criminals so thumbprints they stay the way they are your your fingerprints stay the same way throughout your entire life so they went hey let's let's maybe try this instead the police did not pick it up so we wrote to darwin who was still alive and he said listen the police won't pay attention to me can you help me out darwin was real old at this point and he didn't have any time for that he was like, I can't handle this thing. So he passed it off to his cousin, a man named Francis Galton, who went to work on on uh, fingerprints, on the, the number of variations, the type of variations, all of this. And he calculated out the chances of a false positive on a fingerprint. So basically two completely different people matching fingerprints as being uh, one in 64 billion. Now that's a theoretical number and it's probably practically far lower than that or sorry far higher than that that a false positive could be found but that's pretty good you don't have a lot of things with that high level of of accuracy in terms of identifying marks we now know dna does a pretty good job its theoretical limits are much higher than its practical limits uh but we can talk about that later your retina but you don't leave retina prints on things generally and your tongue is actually very unique but again tongue prints not super common your fingerprints they're on everything everything so it's actually kind of ideal for law enforcement the first case that was actually solved by using a fingerprint as evidence was in argentina in 1892 so wow wouldn't have guessed there yeah um so yeah six years after it was proposed to the metro police and was turned down as a method there was this uh police chief i can't pronounce his name man it's one uh Vuketic? i don't know v-u-c-e-t-i-c-h Oof. i have no idea i'm not trying it nope. actually sounds more slavic than it does yep uh anyways there was there, there two boys were killed their throats were slit their mother was a suspect, but she blamed it on the neighbors. Um, so they went and they questioned the neighbors, who refused to relent under a number of interrogation tactics. And so they went back to the scene of the crime, and they found a bloody thumbprint on the door 
so they said to the mother, hey, uh, can we get your can we get your fingerprints? She said, okay, this is weird. What do you guys, I don't care. And they matched it up and said, yeah, that's your thumb in the blood. Why was your thumb in the blood? And she admitted to the crime. He had just started building a fingerprint database that year in his precinct. This solve the same year that he started building the database was huge for fingerprints as just like an identifying mark because fingerprints get left in a lot of stuff. Now, they didn't do latent prints yet. So, you know, things that were just kind of left on surfaces with the oils of your yeah. your fingers. But, I mean, you did get fingerprints left in blood. Like, that happened relatively commonly with violent crimes. There are also other times when fingerprints are left, you know, more visibly on, on surfaces. They weren't good at moving them, mm-hmm. but they could compare them. So, it got super big in Argentina. Calcutta had been had had been using these mandatorily in mandatorily since 1887 or 1886 so they had started building a, a database of their own but a lot of the police departments were looking at it as kind of inconvenient because how do you look through all of these fingerprints and match up a fingerprint to a person yeah that's where a guy named Sir Edward Richard Henry comes in oh that's 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 some british nobility yeah, name very british you. name yeah Oof who was actually in charge of this database in Calcutta that was going that had, that had started in 1897 again in India. But again, not that depressing of a story. Basically he came up with a, what he called the Henry classification system for fingerprints, which was essentially uh, a numerical code based on which of the fingers it was. And then a number of other characteristics, you know, there's a, a few main types of patterns and so you could classify it based on this this numerical system. It's kind of like the Dewey Decimal System, but yeah. for an image. You could easily classify all of these prints and therefore easily find prints. So if you found a print, you come up with the classification based on the Henry system. And then you go into your database and you only look at those fingerprints. And it's a lot easier to match up. That was kind of a game changer for all these police precincts who hadn't been using it because they saw not only could you use it to solve crimes, but you could also use it to build a database that was actually searchable, which is important with stuff like this. Too much data isn't useful to you, really. You can take all the data in the world. If you can't easily search it, it's not going to do you any good. It's kind of funny because Bertillon starts trying to get in on this whole fingerprint game because he's trying to stay on top as like the best forensic scientist in the world. I get it. He's already done a whole lot for the for the discipline. I, I, I don't begrudge him that. But in 1903, he sets up a, a method of lifting prints from smooth surfaces, which is essentially use scotch tape. I mean, it's it's not it's not quite that simple, but really that's what it comes down to. He also made another oopsie because, I mean, by by 1901, Scotland Yard had adopted the, the Henry system. 1905, NYPD had it. It was everywhere. It was spreading really, really quickly. But people were having trouble comparing the prints because, I mean, it's a visual thing. As much as you can say that, yes, your prints are identical, what you're doing is looking at your ideal print that was taken at the office uh, with printer's ink, you know, your thumb rolled in the proper manner, and looking at that visually and comparing it to a definitely not ideal print found at the scene of the crime and going, does this match? It's inherently subjective. Incredibly subjective. And it's easy to say that a print does not match. 
it's less easy to say that a print definitively does match because every single characteristic of that print has to match. Bertillon comes in and he says, ah, it's not that hard. If you compare uh, 16 ridge characteristics of a print, that's enough to define whether or not it's unique or whether or not it matches. And he came out with the system in 1912, published a whole paper on it and everything. Everyone went, oh, that's so much easier. We're going to use this for sure. Uh-huh. Uh he was totally paper, right. Paper was maybe found to have been forged and uh, the images were forged and altered that he used to prove it oh. in the paper. That's awkward. But we still use a classification system that's not that far off and continue to use that classification system for a long time. Now, we've gotten to a point now where fingerprint analysis is kind of it's better, but I don't think it's as good as people actually think it is. Because now a computer goes through and analyzes the images and does best guess matches. But it's still confirmed by visual inspection. Better. Definitely better. Mm-hmm. But it's still, at the end of the day, a fingerprint expert examining it and making the call as to whether or not that print is a match. Yeah. And again, a lot better. Not a perfect science. But, I mean, fingerprints has been the foundation of, of forensics for over 100 years now. And you get matched with your fingerprints, and it's pretty definitive that you're in a place. Improvements have just been things like uh, we talked about lifting latent prints. So they use a, a dust that sticks to the oils from your fingers. You can find them on a lot of flat surfaces. They've also gotten really creative with things like uh, gloves actually leave prints. So they've they've started, or they have for a very long time, printed leather gloves. Yeah, we, we always find a way to figure out who exactly was there. And that's one of the interesting things about forensic science is we keep getting better at using sound scientific methods for analyzing crime scenes. Speaking of crime scenes, Bertillon's method for for, for taking pictures before anything is touched big change because before then police were just kind of mulling around in there taking a look at whatever poking stuff Mm -hmm. what we would call contaminate the crime scene and i mean they would go in and they would take notes on what they saw but a lot of it's based on memory a lot of it is based on uh their observations at the time usually they have to move out of there fairly quickly um you've got family to deal with you've got witnesses to deal with all of this is pretty high pressure and pretty low on the amount of time you have to do it and incentivized towards massive overconfidence in your own memory and abilities oh of course you're a detective this is Um, your job this is your job this is what you do so photographing the crime scene was a big step forward just in terms of being able to go back and look at it and refresh your memory and actually you know when somebody says they remember seeing this thing you can actually check it against the pictures and it's no longer anyone's word against anyone else's word because the more objectivity you have in the in the analysis of a crime scene the more weight it carries in court which is really what you're trying to do right is to build a case against someone or at the very least figure out who it was that committed the crime having those pictures is incredibly valuable just in terms of reference just going back and seeing what it was like before it was touched by anybody because before you could absolutely have a detective show up late and see something that they remember as absolute fact about the crime scene but in reality another police officer has already disturbed that section of the crime scene and the whole thing is basically useless there was something 
put down on paper by a doctor named Edmund Locard. Um, he, he founded a school, a school of criminology. It was, called, it was later called the Locard Principle, but it's basically every contact leaves a trace. So the isolation of crime scenes turned into let's figure out every time something touched something else. Obviously, this isn't true in the fact or true in the sense of transfer of material necessarily, but there should always be some sort of impression. There should always be some sort of residue. Disturbance. Disturbance, yeah, in, in some form. And that every time there is that disturbance, that contact, that gives us a piece of information that should lead back to the person who was in that place. So it really became about isolating as much stuff as possible and identifying as many points of contact as possible. And only once that point of contact had been examined as fully as it was possible to examine it at the crime scene, was it allowed to be disturbed, to be uh, bagged, to be isolated when it's transported because you don't want contamination of material, and then analyzed at a police laboratory of some sort. And then just the idea of following leads based on the evidence that you find there, rather than just things that witnesses are saying to you, things that you think might be possible because of what you see at the crime scene. Like, that's that's how police work worked before. Gut. Gut. Yeah. You got a knack for it. Yeah. You can tell a criminal when you see one. No, you can't. It we like already went over that last time. It doesn't work that way. Have you read Sherlock Holmes? Oh, yes. Have you read all of it? Uh, m- most of it, at least. Awesome. They're great books. Yes. They're very, very, very good books. One thing that always stood out to me when I was reading Sherlock Holmes was Holmes always made a big deal about not disturbing the scene. And he often complained about policemen who did disturb the scene. And the first time I read them, I remember just kind of being bewildered by this because you don't touch crime scenes. Why is he like, why are these policemen so inept? That was a new idea when these Mm -hmm. books were being written. Yep. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was, I mean, as much as the books are essentially fantasy, they're, they're scenarios that are constructed in order for Holmes's method of detective reasoning to work out perfectly for him every time. So elaborate. Uh, so elaborate, but so satisfying to watch play out. Yep. <laughs> Little Rube Goldberg machines of literature. Him complaining about them contaminating the crime scene was because Sir Arthur Conan Doyle was up on some of these methods when a lot of the local policemen were not. He was familiar with this idea of... Well, I mean, the Lombard principle or the Locard principle had not been put down on paper at this point in time. But that idea of everything leaving a trace is really very much there in the writing of, of Sherlock Holmes. But the cops that were there didn't care or rather were ignorant of it. I shouldn't say that they didn't care. That's not true at all. Um, but we're ignorant of that fact. And so, you know, you get Holmes uh, looking around the scene for Well, he was he was an expert on, on um, tobacco ash mm-hmm. was one of the big things. And it's like who's going to look for tobacco ash? But that was the point was that somebody's going to knock out their pipe near the crime scene. And that could be enough to point the finger at them. Right. After committing the murder, after committing the murder, they light up, they Have light their... a pipe. What would you do? Come on. I, I would definitely fire up my pipe and <laughs> perhaps pour myself a snifter. Um, a lot of, a lot of people don't realize, but Sherlock Holmes is actually based on a real doctor, uh, Dr. Joseph Bell who was a teacher of Conan Doyle's, who would basically, as a parlor trick, bring people in and analyze them in a more reasonable manner than Holmes does, but in in a similarly impressive manner. 
we'll come back around to Joseph Bell, though. I, I mentioned earlier, detectives weren't really a thing up until the late 1800s, mid-1800s. Um, I thought I'd mention quick the Pinkerton Detective Agency. Do you know anything about these guys? Yes. Essentially, um, there were no detectives in America. Yeah. And so this guy named Alan Pinkerton established a private investigation bureau in the 1850s and basically went, yeah, we'll do that stuff. And I mean, they did far more work as basically union busters than they did as actual detectives. But Pinkerton is still actually around as a no, private yeah. investigation uh yep and yeah they were doing stuff that the local police couldn't do in terms of actually investigating crimes and actually following up on leads they had a huge case have you ever heard of hh holmes oh i have i don't think i know anything about it sometimes called america's first serial killer the official count that he confessed to in 1894 uh was 27 okay the real count may have been 200 oh yeah, he had a murder house in Chicago. A murder house. Yeah, he it was like a it was like a, a hotel kind of thing. He would lure people there uh, with with reasonable rates, and then oh. it had secret passages where he would take them back into horrible torture chambers to oh uh, choke to death on gas or be hanged or butchered alive and all sorts of horrible stuff you should really look into it. It's and interesting. This is a true thing that really happened. This is a true thing that really happened and. Holmes was caught by a Pinkerton detective, uh, Detective Frank Geyer, which really made a name for the organization. Yep. Also was a real wake-up call to police on how they should maybe get their detective games on point. To catch the super murderers? To, yeah. He was he was young, too. Oh. He was like maybe 30 when he was caught. Oh, yeah. God. He, had a, he had a murder castle. Yeah. It's yeah, it's it's weird stuff. It's weird stuff. And and part of the problem was that he left Chicago after the World Fair was done because that was a place that he used to get a lot of people traveling from to stay at his murder castle. Naturally, yeah. And he spent time traveling between there and Texas and Canada and authorities couldn't keep up with them because they were out of their jurisdiction. Now, did did he have like remote murder cottages in these places uh, was... he tried to build another murder castle in texas it didn't really fly it didn't tell it didn't take off <laughs> local populace didn't didn't fall for that it couldn't support an entire murder castle okay you need a bigger <laughs> population base look into this dude his his story is one of those ones that just keeps getting bigger and bigger and you're just like that this can't be a real thing that actually happened it is that's actually horrifying it's absolutely terrible and i can't believe there isn't more tv based on it there's been a few tv specials and a number of movies i don't know he, he seems like a, a rich uh character to draw from yeah speaking of rich characters of serial killers to draw from let's talk quick about jack the ripper oh okay yeah. jack the ripper is sensational it's really been blown out of proportion in a lot of ways compared to holmes who murdered definitely 27 maybe 200 uh, Jack the Ripper seems kind of almost tame. There's only five official murders. Five. Really? Yeah, I know. H.H. Well. H. Holmes has the same last name as Sherlock Holmes, so he can't be that bad. And Jack the Ripper, I mean, his middle name is a definite article. In conclusion, the Illuminati are behind this. Exactly. There were five murders in 1888 
in uh, a section of London called Whitechapel. It's the Lower East End. It's where there were a lot of immigrants, a lot of dock workers, a lot of people in poverty, uh, and therefore a lot of brothels, and kind of a place that people of uh, good repute stayed away from. This is kind of the um, the streaming principle that we were talking about with the Chicago School of Criminology, where certain neighborhoods are just bad neighborhoods and good people try not to move into them if they can help it. And therefore, the only people that move into them are the ones that have no other place to move to. And heads shaped accordingly. Yes. <laughs> and their their brows lower mm-hmm. and their ears droop. It was terrifying because of the regularity. It happened about five months in a row, mm. uh, usually right at the end of the month or slightly thereafter. And so people were very cognizant of the pattern and very worried about who would be next. It was also terrifying because he mutilated the bodies really terribly. Oh, I don't know much about Jack the Ripper. That yeah, that would explain the big deal. Yeah, and I mean the the murders they they definitely escalated in the level of mutilation as well. There's there's eleven murders that were that were investigated under the same file, but. They think that only five of them were actually the same person. Um, a few of them were uh, a few few years later, like the, the case file stayed open until 90, 1891. And these five match the same MO, whereas some of them uh, seem too different to have been the same person. But the five official murders, they, they call them canon, which is going to tell you a little bit about how obsessed people are with Jack the Ripper. They all began with, the, the victims were all women, and it all began with uh, their throats being cut. And then from there, various levels of mutilation, always genital mutilation, uh, and then often like organs removed, and they just kept getting more and more brutal. So pretty horrendous stuff. So yeah, what he made up for, or what he lacked in, in number of victims, he made up for with uh, spectacle. Oh dear. A big portion of what made these so big was the focus by the media. It got big play in the newspapers, which was kind of a recently popular thing with the lower classes. Yep. People started writing hundreds of letters as Jack the Ripper. In fact, the name Jack the Ripper comes from the letters that were written in. Some people will say that there are about three letters that could have been the actual one. There's also a lot of people who say that, no, the the actual killer never wrote letters to the editor. (laughs) That didn't happen. Come on. Yeah. So anyways, the murders all happened down by the docks. They checked out dock workers. Specifically, there were these cattle boats that ran between London and the continent. And, and again, this, this shows a, a difference in investigation style from what we would have seen even 20, 30 years before. They started with a standard door-to-door campaign throughout Whitechapel. They uh, investigated over 300 people. More than 80 were detained and questioned at length. And they looked for, when they began, uh, all butchers and slaughterers in the area because of the mutilation. They believed it was someone who was familiar with butchery, basically. Uh, They also checked out these cattle boats because anyone working on them would be familiar with some sort of butchery. They tended to come and go between the the continent and uh, London. And they figured that somebody who is migrant might be more inclined to... I uh, feel like they could get away with something like this rather than someone who lived in the area. But they discounted when the cattle boats were coming and going from that necessarily being where they 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 did the legwork on it, which was really interesting. They even checked to see whether there had been anyone who had switched crews on these cattle boats 
enough times that they could have been in London for all five murders. They also made up the first known offender profile. A uh, police surgeon, Dr. Thomas Bond, drew up uh, a number of conclusions about the murderer based on the murders that had happened, when they had happened, where they had happened, which is standard procedure now for looking for serial killers, right? Yeah. This is the first one that we know of, uh, Jack the Ripper. He actually speculated that it was someone who had no idea what they were doing uh, in terms of butchery. <laughs> he basically went, they're doing too bad a job. I was going to um, say, I mean, if it were uh, clearly a professional job, that seems like it'd be very indicative, but... Yeah, he, he didn't seem to think so. He also, you know, speculated, you know, to his motivations and, and, and certain psychoses that the man might have. He even speculated where you might find the guy. He speculated it might be someone that uh, was actually fairly well-to-do, was living with other respectable people who might have some sort of sense of potentially being uh, an odd sort, maybe even suspicions that he might be the one that's responsible for it, but uh, that'd, that'd was unwilling the, to come. Hmm? That'd crack the social attention wide open. Well, yeah, that's the thing. He, he even spe- speculated that they might suspect him, but were unwilling to turn him in for fear of causing a scene, essentially. Uh, it played to a lot of fears of sort of the rich playing on the poor. It plays, played on a lot of fears of kind of the roles of psychoses in crime that were sort of in vogue at the time. But really, we don't know who it was. We never will know who it was. People still try and figure out who it was all the time. And these happened like 130 years ago. They're not going to figure it out. They're just not. It's entertainment at this point. Yeah, it's it's a weird one, too. I've always found it a little bit... Macabre? Yeah. That's the perfect word for it. It's... I hesitate to say that it doesn't matter, but it kind of doesn't at this point. Yeah. We don't know. We didn't stop the person. Whoever it was is long dead. It's just some really horrific things that happened. Mm-hmm. And, and it was famous, but a lot of the reason that it's famous is because of the police work that was done for it, because the public was demanding better than simply, we don't know who this, who's doing this. And so a lot of things were developed for this case specifically that, again, are now standard operating procedure for police departments around the world. Canvassing uh, the neighborhood, looking for witnesses, looking for certain profiles. I mean, profiling... Profiling has gained a really bad connotation in today's uh, society just because of the issues with racial racial profiling after 9-11. The idea of drawing up a profile is not a problematic thing. In fact, it's a really useful tool for police officers. If a witness says that they saw a blonde person do this, you don't stop people with brown hair just because it's a waste of time. You know, statistically speaking. Yeah. The profiles that they drew up yeah, they weren't any good. And yeah, they didn't really help them catch the person, but the murder stopped. And I don't know. It's a very unsatisfying end. It really is. But I mean, most of the stuff, let me correct that. Everything that they did in those investigations still exists in proper police work today. And you can kind of point to those murders as as kind of the birth of the modern police investigation. Hmm. A lot of the tools had already been around, but this was the first time they were all brought to bear at the kind of the level that uh, that you would expect for a case of this uh, magnitude. And a lot of that was driven by public outcry, but a lot of it was that we finally had the tools to properly investigate these crimes. The only other thing I wanted to really mention is DNA profiling. That's much less kind of Victorian than most of the <laughs> stuff that we've been talking about. But really, since fingerprinting, that's been the biggest major step forward in forensics. 
DNA, we figured out, was the carrier of genetic information in 1952. And we spent the next 30 years basically trying to figure out how to read that genetic information in a meaningful way. But in 18, or in 18, I'm so used to the 19th century at this point. In 1984, Dr. Alec Jeffries uh, finally figured out a way to reliably use DNA to create a profile of a person in order to match up DNA. And immediately it was put to use in the investigation of crimes because it's a really useful thing. I mean, somebody's smart and they put on latex gloves. Well, there goes the whole fingerprinting thing, right? Yeah. They're careful and they try not to, you know, leave any scraps of newspaper that match the <laughs> in their coat pocket. Maybe, maybe they'll be just fine. But, you know, in, in certain cases, and, and especially in rape cases, DNA material is fairly prevalent, as is DNA material in, um, for example, in hair, which falls off all the time, constantly everywhere. Yeah. Sweep uh, your house. You'll be horrified by how much ugh, DNA you leave everywhere. Don't want to even think about it. Not even a little bit. It's a really useful tool for matching it up. And I mean, the statistical likelihood of a false positive is one in 100 billion, which is ridiculous. That's impossible. That's Again, what some estimates are for the total number of identifiably human humans have ever lived in all of time. Mm-hmm. Now, realistically, 0.2% of the population is an, is an identical twin, so that completely demolishes that number. You also have to, uh, to account for things like human error, just lab contamination, things like that. But it's still a very, very high level of accuracy in terms of identifying uh, a person it's pretty much the gold standard today for forensic uh, identification interestingly enough the first case that it was ever used in it was used to arrest a man named colin pitchfork in 1987 for raping and murdering two teenage girls interestingly enough the main suspect in the investigation before they managed to bring uh, dna profiling into it was someone named Richard Buckland, a 17-year-old, well, when the investigation started, a 17-year-old boy who was the main suspect and would probably have gone away for these murders if it wasn't for DNA profiling. So the first case that it was actually used in was also the first case that was uh, th- that it managed to exonerate someone innocent of the same case. Which is, you know, in some ways a much bigger deal. I would argue as such. I mean, one of the biggest problems in investigating a crime and saying definitively whether or not someone was at the scene of the crime in building any sort of case at all is is the certainty with which you can build that case. I mean, I, I think or there have always been open and shut cases. There's always been times when the person is found standing over the body with the bloody knife. And those aren't the ones that people are that concerned about, really, because it's like, OK, well, here we go. This is it. We're doing this thing. Case closed. It's it's when it's when we have absolutely no idea that we've pushed the limits of forensic science to get better at figuring it out, to following all the clues that are available to us. And I think part of it is that, you know, it's it's really important to the way our justice system functions to have confidence in our ability to correctly identify the person. And we've not been good at it historically. We've been pretty bad at it. And, you know, we've gotten better. We're still not great at it. Well, it, it's yeah. hard to measure the number of people who are falsely accused. It really yeah. is. But it still happens. And that's enough 
to continue pu- pushing the bounds of forensic science. But it's gotten better as has false conviction. Mm-hmm. And we've been able to use it to get falsely convicted people out. Yes, which is a fantastic development. And I mean, there are entire organizations devoted to going back over the evidence submitted in trials and and examining whether or not someone was falsely accused of the crime, uh, which is a, an incredibly brave and, and noble use of, of those, those skills and talents to, to make sure that innocent people aren't serving sentences for crimes they did not commit. There are plenty of people, and this goes all the way back to the sciences we were talking about in the first sciences, the pseudosciences we were talking about in the first part. There are plenty of people that once someone is pronounced guilty of a crime, they will never look at that person the same way again. They're not willing to give them the benefit of the doubt. There are certain organizations that are willing to put aside those prejudices, those very natural human prejudices, and listen to people and decide whether or not there may have been a miscarriage of justice and go back over that, which is, again, I I have so much respect for those organizations. They're doing very, very good work. There's a couple other forensic methods that we kind of skipped over. Psychology and psychiatry, which are really difficult in terms of their application in in case to case i mean the idea of criminally insane has changed so much over the past century as our ideas of mental illnesses adapted that it's hard to point to that one as being an effective one or not yeah i mean you can use them to help you build a profile Mm. to a limited extent but exactly yeah uh forensic chemistry chemistry and botany are just bang on we do really good work with that stuff the stuff that we can analyze and identify these days crazy good forensic Uh, botany yeah (laughs) i know forensic anthropology and meteorology are interesting stuff again weather and uh just study of bones like putting together the bones that are left over it's it's kind of horrifying to think about but those people do amazing work the one thing there is the the clay composite faces that they'll do that's pretty iffy I mean, that's based mm. on a lot of conjecture. Have you ever seen those? They, no. They'll actually use the uh, a cast of the skull. And if they're trying to identify remains, they'll use it and they'll use the connective points on the skull where they know that the major muscle groups would connect. Yes. And they use that to build out a face. Hmm. It's about as accurate as police sketches, which again, still used. Super iffy because you're basing it all on someone's memories of an event which are notoriously bad and communicated verbally to another person Mm -hmm. does this look like him yeah i guess i'm so done with this it's been three hours forensic pathology is is just fantastic work that's that's um basically medically what's killed them it's it's the science that goes into uh the work coroners will do but especially in in the case where foul play is suspected the advances in medicine there are are just amazing. Blood spatter analysis. Hmm. It's kind of... It's one of those things where, like something like phrenology, you can make base observations about it, and you can make fairly accurate base uh, observations about it, but taking it and turning it into an abstract analysis of a situation gets really, really iffy. It turns into a bit more of an art than a science. We talked about handwriting analysis. Just stay away from that one. It's not, yeah. it, it's, it's okay in certain very specific applications, but in general, it's not that accurate. And yet it gets used in cases all the time. Forensic dentistry, 
we thought was pretty good. It's not that great. Oh, no? Yeah, that's one of those ones that I was surprised about. No, our teeth are not that individual. There was one study that found a 63% false ID rate. Oh. Yep, there's been two uh, two cases that I found recently that were positively identified through bite marks that were later exonerated through DNA evidence. Uh. Yeah. Not, but, but again, there's this idea of dental records, like identifying somebody by their dental records as being like an extremely accurate and it's not, I don't know. Some of the, some of the stuff that I've come across is interesting, mostly in how not good it is. Yeah. We have a lot of, we have a lot of confidence in forensic science and criminology. And I don't want to say that we shouldn't necessarily, but I think it's good for people to know what sorts of things that these cases can sometimes rest on and it's yeah i mean it's not that we shouldn't have confidence but we shouldn't have 100 percent confidence because literally none of these methods are 100 percent accurate in 1921 john augustus larson the university of berkeley invented the polygraph that word has been on the tip of my tongue for a while now polygraph is bad yep Polygraph combines your blood pressure with your heart rate. And then later in in the 1930s, they added galvanic skin response, which is uh, an electrical response measured across the skin. How much you're sweating. Basically. Um, And it uses these things to show whether or not you're lying, ostensibly, is what they tell people when they hook them up to them, to scare them into telling the truth. Because... In most places in the modern world, a polygraph is not admissible in court as definitive evidence. That's good to hear. There's no good measure of lying. Some people are really good at lying. Some people are not stressed out in physiological ways when they lie. Either because they have utter confidence that they're not going to be found out, because it doesn't bother them that, they, that they've done it, either because they feel justified or because they're psychopaths in the true medical sense of the term. Or sometimes the machines really just aren't that good at it. On the flip side, lots of people get real stressed out when hooked up to a polygraph. You get a lot of false positives. Yep. There's been other attempts to uh, to establish tests for lying, some of which are a little bit better than the polygraph, but it's always bad. One of the most interesting ones I found was developed in Japan in which... You get people to basically take a multiple choice test and you measure their physiological responses to seeing the correct answer in the multiple choice test. So instead of asking you, you know, did you shoot this person? I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to ask you some questions about this crime. Some of some of the information you're not going to know. Some of it's going to be made up and some of it's going to be real. But I'm going to slip a question in there, which is like, okay, was the victim shot with a 45 or a 9mm? And we watch to see if you respond to any of them with recognition. Still not perfect. No. Better than a polygraph. Still not going to do the trick, though. And that's the thing. We're never going to get a one. Well, never. Jeez, listen to me. We don't currently have any 100% accurate measure of, of deception. There's been interesting stuff on the psychology side of lying recently, uh, too recently to really include in the purview of the show. But even that is is pretty fringe stuff right now. So yeah, the polygraph, super bad science. 
but we keep trying to find all these different ways to objectively learn what we can about the scene of the crime, to investigate people who seem most likely to have done it, to to really follow the evidence rather than, you know, number one, try and profile an entire group of people as being most likely to to uh, to have committed a crime. And number two, follow our gut and, and make make police work a, an art rather than a science. The more we can make it objective and detached, the more we can really kind of trust that evidence. Uh, one last shout out to forensic accounting. Oh, yeah. The sexiest of the forensic divisions. Uh, there's forensic computing as well. Yeah, but they got nothing on going through ledgers. Come oh, on, man. Yeah, ledgers. that's true. Uh, yeah, anything you can think of, there is a forensic version of it. Someone has figured out how to apply it to the investigation of crime. And it's, uh, it's, it's really interesting stuff. Forensic skateboarding. I bet there is somebody who has different wheel bearing. Detective Tony Hawk is on the case. (laughs) I think that's a fantastic place to leave it. Uh, is there anything else you wanted to talk about? Nope. That was super interesting. I'm really glad you came on the show. Thanks for having me. The last 150 years or so have seen a massive advancement in how we solve crimes. Forensic science, while far from perfect and still riddled with issues of interpretation and ambiguity, continues to improve with massive leaps such as fingerprint analysis and DNA profiling, as well as constant refinement of the many other forensic disciplines. However, at its core, the standardization and application of science put in place by Bertillon in the 1880s has continued at the center of criminal investigations. Next time on HI101, we'll be going back a bit further than usual to discuss the Roman Empire and the British Isles. That episode will be up on February 1st. As the format of this show inevitably leads to factual errors, I encourage you to visit hi101.ca and check out the corrections posted there. That's hi101.ca. If there are any errors I haven't addressed there, please let me know and I'll add them to the notes. And remember, HI101 is a broad introduction. If the subject we've discussed today has caught your attention, I encourage you to look for more information. It only gets better from here. I'm Adam Blesky, and this has been HI101.